Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Raglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. Valerie Weber, who's the Dean of Wright State University's Boonshoff School of Medicine. Dr. Weber was previously Professor of Medicine at Drexel University College of Medicine and Senior Vice Dean for Educational Affairs. Prior to Drexel University, she was Chair of the Department of Clinical Sciences, Associate Dean for Clinical Affairs, and Professor of Medicine at the Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine, and played a major role in the creation of the new medical school. Before we get started, I'd like to thank a previous Raised Line guest and one of our advisors, Dr. Lois Nora, who is the Dean at the Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine, for making the introduction to Dr. Weber. So thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here with you today, Shiv. So, you know, I know a lot about your background having done the research, but I'm curious if you could tell our audience, which is primarily current and future healthcare professionals, more about your background and what led you to pursue a career first in medicine and then also in uh, academic medicine. Yeah, well, you know, I grew up in a small town in northwestern Pennsylvania. The name of the town is Harbor Creek, right up on Lake Erie. And it really was a semi-rural area. It really didn't have the greatest access to healthcare. And I did not grow up in a family with any physician role models at all. And in fact, you know, as a young woman growing up, a young girl, I didn't really have any career role models. I think my strongest role model that probably when I think back on it led me to a career in healthcare was my mom, who, you know, was a stay-at-home mother, but who had a deep passion for caring for the elderly in our community. And since I was the youngest of three, I was just kind of pressed into service as her sidekick. And she she took it upon herself to make sure the elderly in our community had groceries and, you know, had their prescriptions. And honestly, I, I really grew this love and interest in, in older people. I thought they were fascinating. And um, then as I got older, I sort of uh, identified with with healthcare as a, as a possible career. And I think you know, one thing led to another. I, I, again, without a lot of female role models, I was not quite sure, you know, what you had to have in you to make it into medical school. But as I just kept setting higher bars for myself and kept meeting them, you know, I, I ended up um, into a path of medicine. And I really never deviated out of my interest in caring for older people um, as I trained in internal medicine after medical school. And so it's really been, you know, part of my whole track of interest. And then over time, it really kind of led from patient care into leadership um, and education as I found ways to help people beyond, you know, one-on-one patient care. And I really became inspired by wanting to make the system better and make things better for people. That's wonderful. Um, You know, actually, that's a theme that we've wound up covering quite a bit here on Raise Line with folks like Alan Patrikoff and Abby Levy, who started a firm called Primetime Partners, which is all about providing services to the ageless generation, uh, the silver tsunami that's happening, as well Mm -hmm. as several other um, people. We had Taylor Justice from Unitas, which is focused on social determinants of health. You know, I'm curious, actually, before we go into your work at WSU, is your mom still active in that community? Or, you know, I'd love to hear more about kind of your interest in geriatrics and how you see that shaping out Mm -hmm. over the coming years. Yeah, my mom passed away some time ago, but she, during her life, that was her passion. She was very inspired to do good for people and to help people who maybe had had no one else to help them. And I think, you know, maybe it sounds a little corny, but I think, you know, that passion for service that I, th- I think I just acquired at a young age 
I think it's key for people that are you know, asking themselves, young people, should I go into medicine? And making them realize it's not just about, you know, having a great career or having a, you know, uh, an interesting thing to do every day. In the end, you really are serving people and you ought to have that service orientation if you're to be a good fit, I think. Absolutely. That makes sense. And so, you know, uh, this this theme may come back uh, later on in the in the podcast, but going into, um, you know, how you be, went from internal medicine to then taking on leadership roles at several of these major, major schools. I mean, you've been involved in starting a new medical school at Geisinger. Can you talk about mm-hmm. some of the seminal moments of your career in academic medicine? You know, I got involved in a leadership career quite early. And I, you know, like many things in my career, they just sort of happened or I stumbled into them, I guess. But somebody after my third year of internal medicine residency, identified me as a candidate to be chief resident. And I think it was that seeing something in myself that maybe it took somebody else seeing in me first to have the confidence to do it. And then one thing led to another. My first job was a leadership job right out of a residency was being a medical director of a clinic in Philadelphia that was primarily serving economically disadvantaged and um, minorities. And uh, we had a big population uh, with HIV disease at that time. And so that was a very inspiring way to start my career. We started an early medical, we call a medical home model. We didn't use that term then for patients with HIV with wraparound services and did a lot of education. And then I went to Geisinger Health System for a decade where I was division chief of general medicine and did a lot with care for elderly in the rural communities there, started um, hospitals, programs. And that was transformative time in my career because that system was quite known and continues to be known for a lot of quality and patient safety initiatives and a lot of population health initiatives. So I kind of got that lens of of sort of making care better for people through population health and through informatics and through improving systems of care. And then during that time, I did a master's of healthcare administration at the Harvard School of Public Health, and I got very interested in workforce. And I started reading about workforce and understanding how the dynamics of the aging of the population and the healthcare workforce were really kind of coming together in a way in my home state in Pennsylvania that were going to be quite, you know, possibly cataclysmic. And at that time, I heard about a new school starting in the northeastern corner of Pennsylvania. And the next thing I knew, I was involved in starting a medical school, you know, which is not at all for the faint of heart. It's quite a, uh, quite a job, <laughs> yeah. but it's a very fun and rewarding one. Yeah, we're fortunate to work with a number of, of medical schools that are getting started and the, the amount of paperwork that they have to do to, to get to that point is remarkable. We've, we had uh, Dr. Mark Schuster, who, who was at Kaiser Permanente and their first mm-hmm. dean, I'm sure you know him well, among others. You know, that actually transitions well into another question I had, which is you've been in academic medicine long enough to know that the AAMC and other organizations have been talking about physician, nurse, and other shortages of healthcare workers long before the average American knew what a coronavirus was. Mm-hmm. Obviously, COVID has accelerated some of this demand and interest in health professional education and, and careers. What do you see? I mean, it, it just doesn't seem likely that starting new medical schools or even increasing enrollments will will meet the demand that's coming our way. would love to hear your thoughts on the ongoing shortage and, and how we as a society can address that. Yes, we have increased the numbers of, of medical school enrollment, um, both in MD, allopathic and DO and also mid-level providers. But, you know, whether it's enough to keep up, um, I think it's going to be very interesting to see 
you know, what happens sort of post-pandemic when, you know, I'm, I'm quite sure like many would agree that, that COVID is here, you know, it's going to be as an endemic once we get it under control. And so it'll be part of the landscape, much as influenza and, and things are. But I think we're going to have a big burden of PTSD. We had a crisis of wellness in the medical profession before this. And, you know, this has been quite a rough time for my colleagues on the front line. And I'm quite worried about what this is going to do for workforce. If people are, are going to just, you know, walk away or if they're going to be doubly inspired to continue to serve or to improve the system. Uh, certainly, we've seen people applying to medical school in, in, in larger numbers. I think it was up about 19% this year. And it was at our own school as well. And um, so people continue to be inspired and, and want to serve humanity. And uh, that's quite wonderful to see. At Boonshoft at Wright State, we're going to be increasing our enrollment over the next few years. So, you know, whether it'll be enough, um, whether burnout sort of quells these additional numbers that we have, you know, remains to be seen. Absolutely. It's kind of like a, a leaky funnel we've, we've heard, and hopefully there are systemic changes that can not only improve, you know, scope of work and get more people into, into these careers, but also keep them in their careers even longer. You know, you transitioned the dean of uh, Boonshaft uh, last November, and I'm just curious, like, how has that experience been, especially in the middle of a pandemic where we're approaching the, the one plus year mark of the, of the COVID pandemic in the U.S. at least? Yeah, so it was an interesting time to move and to change institutions. It's going very well. It's just have to be very inventive with getting to know people outside of maybe normal channels. But this is a wonderful institution I've, I've joined. Um, I guess you could say, you know, I'm an adventurous person. One of the things that was great is that the WMC has a session for new deans that are is usually done in person, but this year was done remotely. And so I was able to network with about uh, 18 or so new deans at other schools who also joined during the pandemic. And so we were able to sort of, you know, compare notes. Uh, as you know, any new job, it's about relationship building. And so doing that, trying to get visibility in the communication channels while also managing an ongoing crisis. It's been a challenge, but a rewarding one. Yeah, we had the dean of Wayne State join us a couple months ago too. And, uh, and he was in a similar situation, having just moved mm-hmm. his entire family from New York to Michigan for that opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. But but obviously being adaptable is key in, in the profession of medicine as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yes. So speaking of adaptability, you know, obviously there are a lot of changes I'm sure Boonshaft and, um, and other medical schools have had to make as a result of COVID, ranging from introducing telehealth curriculum to making sure the medical students and others were getting vaccinated or socially distanced. What are some of the lasting changes you think that'll occur to medical education as a result of COVID? as well as healthcare as a whole? You know, it's interesting because, you know, before I came to Boonshoft, I was Senior Vice Dean at Drexel. And, you know, some may be familiar with the fact that we had, you know, a very cataclysmic closure of one of our main teaching hospitals, Hahnemann University Hospital, which had served the community for hundreds of years, 150, I think about, and so we had this crisis that I had managed, which was the closing of a, of a hospital. And it really brought into bold relief the idea of how are we best to clinically educate our physicians, you know, our students and our physicians. And this has been a crisis for a while. If you look at hospitals closing and you look at the loss of clinical education venues, the competition from other schools, offshore schools, et cetera, 
So managing through that crisis and then right on the heels of it, COVID, it just makes you realize that, you know, we have a lot of challenges in how we educate our physicians. Now, with COVID, we were able to turn on a dime. And uh, one helpful thing was that as a country, and all of us in Philadelphia who have run medical schools all got together and made decisions in concert. Uh, this was something that we've never dealt with before, pulling students out of clinical venues because of the shortage of PPE and just how bad was this? Who was going to get it? Were young people going to be affected? And so, yeah, we made a lot of changes. We turned on a dime with many things. And I think some of them will stay. Certainly, I think everybody knows telehealth is here to stay in some way, shape, or form, although there still is no substitute for face-to-face and the physical exam and things that you need to lay on hands to do. But I think it can be a great supplement for people. I think there's certain educational models that we put in very quickly. Um, For example, you know, the use of standardized patients in um, healthcare teaching, we were able to convert that to Zoom fairly smoothly. I think some of the changes that were made in the residency application process and the medical admissions process where students, you know, normally would travel all over the country for these interviews. And, you know, we found out they worked pretty well remotely. And so it'll be very interesting to see this coming year. What goes back to happening in person with the application processes for both medical school and for residencies and what uh, stays remote in the uncertainty of the upcoming year. So I think those kinds of changes, you know, if we want to call them the pandemic silver linings, and then, you know, I think obviously the focus on public health, the renewed focus, um, we were quite mistaken to assume that we weren't really, you know, going to have to deal with a pandemic. You know, I think some in medicine thought, oh, that was, you know, Something to worry about in 1918, that's not going to happen again. We are in so much better shape. And I think we've all learned that we're quite vulnerable and that we can't let our public health infrastructure decline as we have had over the past several decades. Yeah, certainly. I mean, we've we've all heard about the Fauci effect, which some people are attributing to the fact that there's been a 20% increase in applications to medical school this year. But also, I imagine there'll be a concomitant increase in like master's public health and and other of those careers. There's so much misinformation clearly about everything from like what vaccine efficacy means. I mean, you probably saw Mm -hmm. recently the mayor of Detroit kind of rejected the Johnson and Johnson Mm -hmm. vaccine because he misunderstood what that meant, uh, but then kind of backtracked after after Vox and others explained to him what it meant. Uh, So I really Mm -hmm. think there's a role, not just for medical students, but as you're saying, public health infrastructure as a whole, to do a lot to combat not just the virus, but the virus of misinformation. Oh, my goodness, yes. We need to have sort of a little bit of better understanding between our public policy and politicians, government officials, and, you know, science as a whole, certainly vaccine science. Here in Ohio, our governor has been fantastic with sticking to the science, believing the science. And, um, you know, he's a Republican governor. He's quite, um, I I think, artful at managing through this. And so, you know, it can be done. It does not have to be politicized. You know, there's science and there's fact. And that's kind of the way we have to get through this. Um, It's a miracle that we have so many vaccines. We are so fortunate to have so many effective vaccines. And I think there's still a big gap in education about that. I mean, we had a problem with vaccines before this um, and a distrust of of science. So I think, you know, we have a lot of work to do there. Yeah, absolutely. Not only health information, trust among the public, 
but also um, equity. And I know that's something that you care about and, and all people in academic medicine and leadership should care about and, and do care about. Um, do you mind commenting a bit on, on that? Because I know these are topics that you and, and your colleagues have been interested in long before, not only COVID, but also all the things that have recently happened with regards to equity, ranging from George Floyd to even last week's uh, Atlanta yes. shootings. Um, and I know that's something that the students are obviously extremely motivated by as well. Yeah, so this May will be my 30th anniversary from my medical school graduation. Hard to believe. Congrats. And, you know, I've been reflecting a lot on this because one of the first things I noticed as a medical student in Philadelphia is that we had a segregated healthcare system. And we, we still do to some degree. And we've known the science of health disparities been quite clear over those three decades and we've not nearly done enough. And so one of the things that I think is just so important for medical schools and for academic medicine is to lead the way in being a champion for health equity, not only you know the science and the research that can shine a light on it, but to really take our, our voice as an authority um, and our role. And many medical schools are located in big cities or other communities where there are health disparities here in Dayton, Ohio, we have some real health disparities as we have, you know, in many areas of the country. And it's our job. It's not just our job to educate physicians. It's our job to be a community voice and to work with the community to improve our healthcare disparities. And so that's something that I'm working very hard on as I get used to my new community and, and get to meet people. You know, I think the COVID vaccine situation has shown a light on the disparities. You know, if you set up a vaccine campaign that's based just on internet access, that's going to be a problem, not just for the elderly, but for people who uh, don't have access. And so this is an opportunity with everything that's happened in the last year, the pandemic, George Floyd, the other things that have sort of come together to make this a moment that we have to, we can't let pass by. We have to seize upon it. And so, yes, I'm very passionate about that. And I, I do expect that my other partners and or medical schools around the country are going to be working as hard on this issue as we are here. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's again, been one of the silver linings, I think, of all the stresses that have accumulated over the past year is just, a, you know, it's what they say, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And I think, yeah. I think you know, there's decades worth of change that are occurring um, within months. I mean, mostly yeah. in the positive direction, sometimes in the negative direction. Obviously, we've, we've all heard the studies about, you know, women in the workforce going back to take care of their family members at home. So it's kind of reversing mm -hmm. some of the social change that we've seen very positively over the past few decades. But in other ways, it's it's accelerated it. So I think there are some silver linings. Are there other silver linings that you've identified either in your current role or just in general that you'd like to comment on? Well, certainly, I think we all in our personal life, you know, it put a halt to so many things in our life and gave us the opportunity to reexamine it. And we started off the podcast talking about, you know, identifying medicine as a life of service and something that was a good fit for me. And though I found many roles within my career, it's always really been about, you know, making things better for people. And so I'm incredibly fortunate. And I think the past year has just reminded me of how fortunate I am. And as somebody who is as fortunate, you, you must use your, your role to help others and to make the system better. It's really, it's really what it's all about. That's a really good point. And I'm glad you even brought that up because that was actually what my next question is, is what advice do you give to your students at Boonshaft? And in general, what advice would you like to give to our audience of early stage healthcare professionals about meeting the challenges of COVID and beyond? It's certainly been a, 
a hard year, but I mean, I'm just struck by and I'm honored by being part of a field, which I actually think some of these new vaccines, particularly the mRNA vaccines, are going to be the discovery of the century. I can be proven wrong, but I, I strongly feel that they're going to become a platform for treating many different types of diseases and uh, just how fortunate to be involved in a career and in a field that has the ability to impact so many people positively. And I would say to students, and I do, you know, this is the best career in the world. It's a hard one to go into. It's a calling. It's your life. It's not just, you know, a job that you clock in and out of. And it's primarily about service. And it can be risky. And we've seen healthcare providers lose their life over the past year. But certainly there's nothing more profoundly impactful and rewarding that one could do with one's life. Yeah, that is absolutely a theme that's come up uh, throughout the interviews you've done in the podcast. Um, I know we're coming up on time. So is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you'd like to convey about yourself, about Boonshaft, or in general um, that you think our audience would be interested in? Hmm. Well, I think that uh, one of the things that I've discovered through my career is the power of community-based medical schools and community-based medicine. Our medical school is one of the community-based schools meaning uh, we're a little bit less of an ivory tower or um, highly, highly research-driven uh, institution. Certainly those institutions are wonderful places to be. But I think the strength of community-based medical schools is that we are on the ground and have a lot more possibilities of impacting the local community um, in ways that are quite profound. And so I'm just a big advocate. I mean, I started a community-based medical school in uh, Pennsylvania as well. And so you know, we have a pretty big tent in medicine, but I just think I'd like to share how special community-based medicine is. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I mean, many of the, the programs we work with are very much focused not only on topics like aging in place, but also, you know, finding talent in those communities to teach. For example, we work with AT Still University, which is a DO program, and they work with the National Association of Community Health Centers. And they're doing a huge DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion initiative to try getting people who, who come from rural areas to actually be empowered to become the nurses and doctors and PAs in those areas, because uh, they're more likely to, to not just, you know, graduate and leave the area, but have family roots and whatnot there. So I think that's a really mm -hmm. powerful point you just made there, too. Yes, we do a really good job at retaining Ohioans, enrolling and retaining them into the community, both for residency training and then thereafter. And so, you know, as a state-sponsored institution, that's what we're all about serving the people of Ohio. And so we're quite uh, dedicated to that. That's wonderful. I'm glad that that's a major key performance indicator of, of the school. Well, with that, I, I'm grateful for your time, Dr. Weber, for taking the time yeah. to not only be on the podcast, but more importantly, for the work that you're doing to raise the line and improve access and healthcare education as a whole. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun talking today. And with that, I'm Shiv Uglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>